Good afternoon, everyone. This is Zach Lucas from McCarthy Bedding. Just going to start a little bit earlier uh, and then scheduled just to begin the uh, sort of pleasantries and to introduce the panelists and to go through uh, today's agenda on the last virtual roundtable of 2020. So if I track through, here's the panelists for today. So I'll start off with Marcus Hinckley. Uh, he's head of private client in Asia for Hawksford, which is a corporate service provider and also a trust company in Singapore. And then we're joined by two bots from uh, 1291. Uh, first, obviously, Peter Triggs, who is probably widely known to the Singapore market, and Yannick Honey from uh, uh, the uh, Hong Kong office of 1291, CEO of Asia Group. And we're also uh, happy to be joined by Michael Velton, who's a tax partner with Deloitte in Singapore. So these are the main panelists. And I think just before we, we get started, I'll do the normal admonitions, which is um, when it comes to these virtual roundtables, we obviously are running through technical discussion points. Today is a quite topical one because it deals with PPLI versus trusts. There are many, many technical points that will come up in practice in this. Um, these are sort of sincere views of all of the practitioners involved, but they shouldn't be relied on as constituting any form of legal advice. So we don't want to be in a position where anyone is uh, using the, the, the comments that are made on this particular webinar as a basis for advice or basis for action or inaction. So these are just general comments being made uh, by practitioners um, uh, for the benefit of the viewers, uh, but without um, incurring any sort of liability risks. For today's purposes, we've, I'll run through the agenda. So we'll do a general introduction. Here we'll do the comparison or the high level comparison between PPLIs and trusts. We'll look at the life cycle of each of these platforms and we'll look at obviously the creation, uh, the administration, the termination of uh, the, each of them comparatively, and then look at combination solutions where a trust is combined with PPLI and analyze which is, uh, seems to be the most compelling combination. And then we'll end with the question and answers. Now, as with always, after the, the event, a recording as well as the slides will be circulated <clears throat> so that if in case you need to drop off or indeed you're watching it later then that's all fine. So introduction, uh, going through just the basic component parts of the, uh, the, the trust as against the PPLI and then all the life cycle comparisons. So kicking off with, we'll use the, the trust first because it's, uh, I, I suspect, quite familiar to many of the, um, the viewers today. And what we'll do is we'll go through the component parts and just I'll invite Marcus to have some comments and we'll just talk generally about the components, the component issues on our trust and, and how they all configure together. So the first thing is that the, the set law of a trust. You always need to have an individual or, or an entity creating a trust. And I'd ask Marcus, in, in your practice, when it comes to trust creation in Asia particularly, is it predominantly individuals or do we see a lot of corporates creating trusts um, in typically with, let's say, the Singapore market, which is um, one that you're more familiar with? Um, well, certainly the, the individual trustee, uh, sorry, individual set laws is, the, is, is by far and away the most common. Um, it's not to say that companies, corporations don't set up trusts at all. Um, there are various reasons why that might happen. But um, in generally speaking, it's uh, individuals. In terms of uh, uh, reserved powers or power holding positions uh, within a trust context obviously this is a very very um, sort of necessary component part particularly within the Asia market it's a way in which you balance the trustees unbridled discretions and you provide some level of take back 
for the, uh, for the family or for the settler. And usually these are described as protectors. Now, Marcus, in your experience, when it comes to protectors, uh, is it generally just the set law? Uh, is the reserve power holder? Or do we have sophistication in the market where it's a group or a committee-based protectorship? What do you generally see? I think that in the in the more simple cases, you'll see a reserve powers trust and the set law will have those reserve powers back to himself, the rights and obligations. In more complicated, particularly if we're dealing with family succession or family governance kind of issues, you might see um, a committee uh, protector committees, for example, formed. Um, so in the more complicated ones, you're seeing, you're seeing more and more of that. And as the advisors are becoming more familiar with how to draft it and how to use it, I think um, we're, we're seeing a, a greater use of, of, of committees in the market. What, what sort of powers are generally reserved? So what, what is this split between the trustee and the protector? What, what is actually going on there in terms of the typical powers that are reserved? So um, to a certain extent, that depends on the law that you're looking at. So if we're talking about strict reserve powers under reserve powers laws in Singapore, Hong Kong, the reserve powers are the power of investment. Um, and, and almost inevitably in any jurisdiction, a client is interested in um, reserving to himself that power over the, the buying and selling of his trust assets. Um, right. However, and of course, reserve other powers to yourself as well. So um, uh, either if you're using other jurisdictions, Jersey, for example, you can reserve other powers, powers of disposition over the trust assets, um, et cetera. So the idea with these power holders is to provide some form of balance within the trust. The trustee has some discretions, but there's also some discretions that are reserved to the family. Is that basically what's going on? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so really, um, uh, as, a, as a, I guess, it, initially, the trust tool um, was a trustee-directed kind of vehicle where the set law wouldn't have any ongoing obligations and ongoing rights. Um, but but you know, from a marketing perspective, that's a very difficult thing to sell to a, to a lot of people, particularly those who are not used who are not from a common law background. So providing a structure whereby they can have a lot more control over what the trustee is doing is something which is um, uh, is far more sought after. Right. And just moving on to the, the trustees, obviously we can have different types of trustees. We can obviously uh, engage um, licensed trustees like Hawksworth, for instance. But we could also have PTC or private trust companies, as well as individual trustees, which is fairly rare, I would have thought. But there are also possibility in generally in the market space. What do we see? Is it mostly PTC trustees, or do we are we starting to see actual individual trustees um, starting to turn up? Um, well, we do get called about all three of those possibilities. So. Right. Obviously, the, the, um, there's no place for a professional trustee if in the end of the day, it's an individual trustees who, you know, the individuals want to be trustees themselves. Um, you know, in, in places like New Zealand, Australia, very common indeed to be um, a trustee of your own trust. So but it's in these professional trustee environments um, where really the companies, the licensed trustees have kind of taken over. Um, and then you've got the PTCs. So PTCs have come in as a way of allowing that, that the, the, the family, if you like, or the set law, let's say, direct control over the trustee. He is now sitting on the board of that PTC, private trust company. Uh, so as far as you have licensed as against a, a, a sort of PTC, what, what's the ratio? Is it like for every one licensed 
sort of trustee trust, you have two PTCs, or how, how does that look nowadays in terms of the, the PTC usage? Um, yeah, that very much depends on the, on the type of book you've got. So the, the PTC comes into its own where you're dealing with perhaps family-owned businesses, um, where people really want to control their own destiny, um, or they're dealing with trading assets, perhaps, that the trustee is reluctant to hold themselves. So if you're a trustee that, that, that only holds bankable assets, for example, you probably very rarely see a PTC. But if you are a trustee that's dealing quite often with, with interesting assets, you know, luxury um, art or, or trading assets, things like this, you might see PTCs quite often. In Hawksford, we, our ratio is about, um, about 1 in 15, I suppose. 1 in 20 would be a PTC. Really? Okay. okay. In terms of beneficiaries, obviously these are traditionally going to be family members. How many times do you actually corporate entities being beneficiaries? Or does it just tend to be natural persons? It, it tends to be natural persons. Right. And, and in terms of, are they described individually, typically, or are they described as a class? So you, you will probably have a combination of that. So the primary beneficiaries, those who are alive right now in, in the lifetime, um, that might be the set law, his wife, for example, immediate family, you'll probably see them described individually. But as you go down generations, you're likely to see that, that, that a class of beneficiaries are mentioned, you know, the grandchildren of the set law or something like that. Okay, so those are the main constituent uh, sort of parts of the trust and obviously the underlying entity here, it's showing shares in a company that holds bankable investments that's, that's the trust fund, but these are the main parties to the trust, protector, set for trustee and then beneficiaries. Now, from a PPLI policy perspective, um, here's the interesting aspect. So we, we've described it in the diagram as a PPLI policy holding the shares of an underlying company with an investable account. In reality, this is for shorthand, in reality, it's the life company that actually holds that underlying company. It's not the policy as such because the policy is a contractual document. But for shorthand, we've kept it as the policy visually holding the underlying company. So policyholders, so I'd probably invite Peter to have a, have a, a canter at this one. Um, policyholder, can you explain for the, for the members that are watching this, what is a policyholder in the context of a, a life product such as a PPLI policy? Sure, happy to do that, Zach. But um, if I may, I'll just take a minute to, because I think... Um, private placement life insurance might be a little new to some of the, the people dialing in. So just a minute or so of background. Um, private placement life insurance has been around for a long time in the US and also in Europe. Um, and it has been in Asia as well for, for a while with companies like um, the Prudential, for example. And there's a number of, of companies here, Friends Provident, there's, there's quite a few. And they will um, typically have their own sort of products, which, which will be uh, private placement life insurance products. And typically these have become known a little bit as either wrappers or 101 policies, policies with perhaps 1% of life cover, 100% being the, the assets that are put into them. So they qualify as an insurance contract. And I think some people in Asia perhaps think that PPLI is, a, uh, is, is the same thing as a, as a 101 policy. Um, whereas PPLI is a much broader concept. The 101 is a subset, just as variable universal life is actually 
a subset of the broader concept of PPLI. And so it's the broader concept that we're talking about today, the idea that you can transfer your assets to, uh, into the name of an insurance company um, in the same way that with a trust, you transfer your assets into the name of a trust company. And you'll find that during the presentation that, that, that Zach's put together here, we're looking at a particular situation where uh, the asset is uh, an underlying company. Uh, and we're using that to demonstrate the analogies, uh, the, the similarities and the differences between um, the PPLI as an asset holding structure and the, the trust or trustee uh, as the asset holding entity. So back to your, your question, Zach, what's the yeah. policy holder? The, the policy holder is, is sort of analogous to um, usually the set law. Uh, the set law transfers his assets to the name of a trustee um, and uh, gets back, if you like, the, the trust deed as, as the sort of the reference document um, to govern the relationship. Uh, the policyholder is, is the original owner of the assets, typically, who has transferred the assets into the name of an insurance company, um, but the governing document is an insurance contract. And the policyholder now has uh, an insurance contract giving him policyholder rights, which typically is the right to um, redeem or partially redeem the policy at any time. Um, and the right also to assign the, the, policy, the policy to another policyholder, uh, should he so wish. So it's, uh, it's analogous, if you like, to the, the set law of trust. And, and the relationship between the policyholder and the insured, there's, there's a terminology here of an insurable interest. Now, I know in some instances, some jurisdictions don't have that concept. Uh, common law jurisdictions tend to struggle with it. I wonder if you could just, um, just sort of talk us through the policyholder relationship with the insured uh, and whether or not the policyholder can actually be the insured as well. Yeah, so the insurable interest, first of all, I, I think, um, you know, if we're familiar with Singapore and Hong Kong, then we, we, we're in jurisdictions that have the concept of insurable interest. And the idea is that, you know, I can't go and insure somebody's life if, if I may stand to benefit from them actually dying. Um, I, I need to be in a position where um, I suffer some loss if somebody's going to uh, if somebody's going to die. Otherwise, you know, I could insure the life of people I don't like and then take steps to see that I redeem the insurance proceeds. Um, so insurable interest is the sort of the public policy point where um, different jurisdictions define who has insurable interest. So typically it's a spouse and minor children. Um, in Singapore, a trustee can have insurable interest in the life of a settlor. That's not the case in Hong Kong. But it's interesting that in many jurisdictions, um, they don't bother about insurable interest. In, in uh, Bermuda, you can insure anybody's life as long as they agree. And there are other jurisdictions which just don't have that same concept. But I think it's quite a good, you know, it's quite a good one. Um, and it's something if you're setting up a, uh, an insurance contract, it's one of the things you have to check that um, uh, there isn't a risk that the contract could be voidable if, uh, because it lacks insurable interest. Um, so typically the policyholder will insure very often their own life um, with, with the family as beneficiaries, um, but they could insure the life of um, uh, somebody else subject to um, insurable interest if, if they're in a, a jurisdiction where that's important. How many sort of insured can we have? Because we can have joint lives, I suppose, but can we just keep going a bit like uh, from a trust perspective, having like uh, a sort of 
um, a, a kind of well, no, you can have multiple lives assured. In fact, I might um, sort of call on Yannick here to maybe um, speak about uh, Europe. I think you've probably seen multiple uh, lives insured there, Yannick, haven't you? Uh, happy yeah, to say something. Uh, definitely a lot of insurance carriers allow actually to have several life assured, um, sometimes vary up to six, maybe sometimes even eight. Um, I think what is here may be crucial and we're coming to the text part later with Michael, but um, certain insurance companies, they also allow to change insured persons and think, okay, then you get this uh, basically long livity of the insurance policy uh, as SEC you have mentioned but the issue here is very often this is an ovation of a, of a contract and typically triggers taxes at least in developed jurisdiction in Europe for example and um, if you change an insured person obviously that's the heart of the insurance policy then you would actually trigger taxation by novating the contract. Is it possible to insure a minor child, like a, a sort of newly born child? Is, it, is that possible so that we can get the maximum ratio? Absolutely. Uh, typically, a lot of insurance uh, jurisdiction, they allow to have minors insured. Um, and therefore, you can basically have um, yeah, your kids and then have basically a contract running for a very, very long time. Effectively insured is, is akin to the trust period in a sort of broad, broad sense of the word. Okay, looking at the beneficiaries, um, when we look at the, the EGALA policies, is, does this tend to typically obviously be individuals or can we have um, companies and sort of legal arrangements or how does it typically configure and are there any restrictions on the beneficiaries that we can actually have involved in policies? I think you see all of the all of those situations. Um, companies, you know, can take uh, life insurance on. Uh, you know, you've you've probably heard the expression "key man insurance." So companies can insure a uh, a very impo important executive, uh, and the company could be the beneficiary of the policy uh, to protect against um, you know the, the the problems that will arise if that key person uh, dis disappears. So that certainly happens. Um, in most cases um, that I've seen, Yannick may have seen the very different ones, but um, I suppose the majority tend to be individuals. But I think increasingly, and, and maybe it's something that we'll talk about later in this, this session, um, having a, a trust uh, trustee as the beneficiary of a PPLI contract um, can bring together the advantages of both um, PPLI and uh, and trust, but perhaps we'll get to that a bit later on. All right now, another bit that we were we were talking about was this thing about life cover, and uh, within the PPLI context, we have a life element and we also have a cash value element. And, and what I would like sort of Peter or even Yannick to, to discuss is the relationship between these two. So if we go back to the life cover. Um, is there any mandatory life coverage percentage that we need to be concerned of? I know you mentioned earlier, Peter, about the, the sort of 1% type policies, but, uh, and obviously I, I appreciate that some of these policies will point into different jurisdictions that may have different rules, but as a matter of course, what, what are we talking about here in terms of life cover? Does it need to, to be a nominal amount or does it actually need to be substantive? What's, what's the thinking? Well, there, there has to be some, right? There has to be some, uh, otherwise it's not an insurance contract. 
Um, but in many jurisdictions, it, 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 uh, if you look at the legislation, um, it can be nominal. Uh, and, uh, and in many jurisdictions, 1% is fine or even, even a, fixed, uh, a fixed sum, which could be less than that. Um, however, um, and it can be greater. So, so uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I think you know, a lot of people feel that PPLI is something with the 1% life cover. Actually, you could have 100% uh, life cover. If you've got $50 million of uh, assets, you could get some very high life cover uh, subject to all the normal conditions of uh, health and so on. Um, so you can have very high life cover in the PPLI policy because if you put things like your family business and your realist commercial property and your land and everything underneath, it all counts as premium. You can end up with a premium that has hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. And on top of that, you can add substantial life cover. But I think the, the, the interesting point um, of whether 1% is enough, I think I don't want to jump the gun too much. We're going to have a section a bit later on, on tax. The issue, I think, is that there are many jurisdictions, and you can take maybe Australia as an example, where legally it's enough to have 1% life cover. But um, you really have to think, if you're an advisor, whether you want to recommend that to a client, because um, many jurisdictions now are looking at general anti-avoidance rules, where you know, the insurance industry might be fine to say, yes, that's an insurance contract. But the, um, the tax office may have a different view and may say, look, wait a minute, don't tell me you did this for life insurance reasons. It looks to me like you've done this entirely for, um, for tax avoidance. Um, and, uh, and I think this is a real risk now as we see the tax world evolving very fast since um, CRS came in. A number of jurisdictions are looking again at, um, at their tax regulations. And I think I'll defer to Michael later, who's going to talk more about this. Um, but I think um, whether 1% is really enough these days, I think you really have to think very hard. Right. And in terms of the, the cash value, just simplistically, is that there effectively to fund the, the, the life cover? Or, or is that where the life cover comes from? Or on a PPLI, are you just doing a single premium? Or can you spread it out and actually use the cash value to fund it? How does it actually interrelate? Well, there has to be some liquidity in the policy because annual cost of insurance has to be paid. So yeah. typically the carriers will look at when they're looking at whether they will accept assets. You know, a couple of things that they will look at is you know, one, can we get good valuations? Uh, you know, can we value all the stuff that's coming in? And secondly, is there going to be sufficient liquidity over time to pay um, the cost of insurance, depending on the level of, of, of the life cover that's been requested? And so, you know, commercial property that is genuine, ge uh, that is generating uh, rental income, for example, would be a good asset to have. Um, right. But if you have something that's purely, you know, that doesn't have any income at all, um, then uh, that's something that would be a, a consideration for the for the carrier. The other the other thing which is relevant here is for CRS purposes, it's surrender value that gets gets reported. So I'm not sure if that was part of your questions. Zach. No, no, but we'll, we'll get to some of that CRS analysis later on. Okay, so I think in, in terms of just looking at the two um, side by side, obviously, you know, one is contract based and one is a, a sort of fiduciary based or, or, or obligation based. I think the, the main sort of takeaway, and I think we can all join in on this or chime in, well, the main takeaway is uh, within the trust context, there seems to be a, a lot more wiring in terms of governance and balancing different powers, etc. Whereas Within the policy context, it looks like the policyholder is the main 
the main sort of person in that context uh, as against the, the trust where it seems to be a whole sort of dichotomy of different power holders. Uh, obviously within the, the policy, it's also got a very much a, an investment side to it as well. Whereas within the trust context, it can be in many cases, just a sort of static holding vehicle. And that's, that's sort of expressed by it not needing to uh, maintain life cover and all the rest. So it seems that the, the two, just at the beginning of this, um, we can see some of the reality of they're both asset holding vehicles, but obviously a policy is a contractual based approach, whereas a trust is a fiduciary based approach. And so this will be borne out during the, the course of our discussion that some of these differences will come to bear and some of the advantages and disadvantages will, will be um, sort of highlighted. But at the, at the beginning, it just looks like the trust, is, there's a lot more wiring that we can done, a lot more fine tuning. The perpetuity period of a trust in Singapore is 100 years and in other jurisdictions it's uh, in perpetuity, so it, it doesn't end. Whereas with a policy, you do have an end stop because you have the insured that, that will bring this to a halt if they are no longer uh, sort of around. So I think those are the sort of high level um, sort of discussion points as we roll in to discuss them in more detail. So going on to the life cycle comparison. So the, here we're looking quite simplistically at the creation of these, um, these various structures and seeing the differences between the two. So from a trust creations perspective, you're looking at the assets being put into the trust and the set law. And very simplistically, what's the process and procedure to establish a trust? Settlement of company shares, if you're doing that, and the time to create. So Marcus, from your perspective, just very, very sort of briefly on this, What's actually involved in onboarding and not, not necessarily looking at AML and all the rest, but just looking at the mechanical side of onboarding a new trust and the procedures that are gone through to actually begin the process of settling the shares and, and bringing the trust into life and the main component parts that you need from a trust to make it valid. Um, yeah, okay. So sitting, sitting aside the AML, the regulation side of it, yeah. um, uh, actually setting up a trust on its face should be very straightforward. Um, what we're talking about is the beneficial owner of an asset, someone who, who absolutely owns it, is part is making a gift to a trustee to hold that particular piece of property on trust. Um, in practice, it gets a little more, more complex than that. Um, the obvious complexity is um, that, that, that what is the, what are the terms of that trust? So it can be an oral trust. You know, I can give something to Zach and just tell him what 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 the terms are but obviously that's not going to work in, in in our industry so we need to have a trust deed so immediately you've got a degree of complexity because that trustee can can come from a precedent but it's often something which is pretty pretty bespoke um, once so we once we have the trust deed prepared and that will take a little bit of time um, then we need to uh, obviously ensure that the set law validly owns the asset that he's transferring over and then he needs to own it himself. Um, and then um, uh, we have to have, obviously there's tax considerations and, and other issues involved in the actual transfer of that asset um, that need to be considered as well. So um, although on the face of it, it might seem quite straightforward, there's actually quite a few hurdles to get over in terms of that procedure to establish the trust. Right, right. Now, looking at the PPLI uh, creation, same questions. Uh, process and procedure to establish a PPLI, subscription in kind. So here we're not putting cash, we're actually, as, as said earlier, we're using shares as the basis on which to subscribe. And then the estimated time to establish a policy. And I think, um, Peter, I'd invite you to, to, to run us through this, and particularly 
um, unlike a trust, I, I suspect on the PPLI, there will there may well be some uh, medical sort of uh, uh, tests that need to be gone through because there's likely to be uh, live coverage on this. But if you can talk us through from a PPLI perspective, how intrusive is that or do we actually have to have that at all? And then the process of, of course, to subscribe in kind using shares. Sure. Um, well, whether, whether there's a, a medical test required depends on the extent of the life cover. And if we're looking at something very nominal, then that usually was not an issue. Uh, not an issue. Uh, if there's substantial um, life cover, then um, there will be a, a health, a health uh, test required. And that's, of course, made more complicated now with, with COVID because um, uh, it's more difficult for clients to travel to places where carriers are comfortable, that the medical facilities are reliable. Although a number of carriers have come up now with, with solutions where if the life cover is less than $2 million, for example, they will, um, they will uh, make exceptions. So leaving aside the, the health cover, um, it's very, the transfer to the insurance company is, is very analogous to the transfer to the trust company in that um, it could be a chargeable transfer for capital gains tax in the client's home jurisdiction. Um, so it could, be a, it could be a tax event, which we'll come to later with, with Michael. Um, how long it takes, uh, I mean, the process is, is pretty straightforward. You, if you're dealing with BVI company shares, you sign the contract with the insurance company and you transfer the shares into the name of the insurance company. So that's, that's pretty straightforward and doesn't take very long at all. Um, what can take time is um, if, if you can't use an underlying company, because there are a number of jurisdictions where if you want to achieve a tax result in a country like France or the UK or the US, uh, there are a number of jurisdictions where to have a tax compliant policy, uh, you need to have the financial assets themselves held in the name of the insurance company. Um, and the problem that comes there is that the insurance company has to open an account with the private bank of choice. Um, and, and then the delay is usually with the account opening with the, with the bank. They may, may not be used to opening an account with an insurance company. Um, they may think that they, they can't do it and uh, they may not understand why they're doing it. Um, and I've, I've seen cases where it's taken almost a year by the time KYC and compliance and legal and credit and everybody gets involved. Um, and finally, they, they get what's going on and um, uh, it, can, it can be done. But, but that's where the delay can come. If you're just transferring the shares of a BVI company, um, it can be very straightforward. And the underlying bank accounts, if they're already held in the name of the BVI company, uh, they don't have to change. They don't move. Uh, at the bank level, there will be another level of KYC has to be done on the insurance company now, but that's usually not a big problem. Um, but the process itself is very straightforward. And how many of the PPLI policies are reinsured? So how, how many times do you actually get the reinsure, the, the life company that's reinsuring actually take an interest in this process? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the questions. Um, it's sort of the, the, let's say the initial carrier is reinsuring the risk of this policy, uh, the company that they're approaching, the other life company that they're approaching to reinsure the risk. All right. Well, okay. So that would happen. I'm going to defer to Yannick, but that would happen if there's significant life cover, right? So uh, let me uh, bring in Yannick here for his experience on this. 
Absolutely. I think it depends very much on the risk that you insure. Typically, uh, the fronting insurance companies, they have a certain cap where they're willing to take over the risk. Uh, with certain PPLI carrier, to be honest, that's super low. Um, so already when it goes into the couple hundred thousand of death benefit, which you obviously can easily achieve when you have, even if you have a 101 on a couple million premium, um, then the reinsurance company comes into place. And there it obviously then depends regarding medical, how much risk is insured, uh, do they just have a questionnaire, do they need to be sent to the medical check. Um, some carriers go to 500,000 without medical checks, some 2 million and slightly above. So it depends very much in the market. Okay, so I think broadly the, the process to, to create is fairly similar. I think that the sort of AML nightmare is probably similar as well in terms of shifting it over from individual ownership into, um, in, in the case of a trust, to the trustee and in the case of PPLI to the life company. Um, depending on the life cover coverage, you may encounter delays when it comes to medical testing. Obviously, in the current environment with COVID, that can also be exacerbated. But it all—it's all sort of um, uh, so horses for courses in terms of the amount of delay that you might be encountering. But the general takeaway here is that it's pretty similar in terms of the setup and the process to constitute the trust and the, the policy itself. If you're uh, using shares. Yep. Right, from an administration standpoint, so this is where you have the policy is up and running now, the trust is up and running, and these are the main sort of administrative points that we're going to sort of look at. So control, how do we actually exert or reserve control? Uh, how do we extract benefits from uh, the, the particular structure? What are the asset protection attributes? And then finally, the taxation, how, how is it dealt with? So from a control standpoint, obviously from a trust, uh, it's gonna be the relationship between settlor protectors uh, and the underlying company. The methods to control a trust, and I'll just run through and counter them. Uh, complex PTC structures is, is an example. Settlor reserve powers, those are very popular in Singapore. Powers to appoint and remove directors. These can be directive powers. Powers to direct investment policy. And then the, the rather odd way in which trusts seek to exclude trustees from involvement in underlying companies by what's called the Bartlett Clause. So, uh, sort of Marcus, from your perspective, when we're looking at how trusts are, um, how we have this mix of control, uh, generally, how does it configure in the marketplace? Do we end up with quite high, high amounts of trustee discretion without any level of uh, reserve power, or do we always have a reserve position where they're there's a, a mix of powers being used. And if we do, is it predominantly reserve powers or is it this, the, the use of a private trust company as a, as a way of doing that? And, and, and in, in the mix of all of this, how do we end up with a Bartlett clause for members uh, watching this that are not aware of what a Bartlett clause is seeking to achieve? So mm. just broadly, if you can run through. Certainly from a trust perspective, the takeaway here is there's a lot of flexibility. So there's a, there's a number of ways to slice this particular control issue. Um, you've mentioned them there. The, the most common by far in Asia, um, but I would stress in Asia, is the set law reserve powers. Um, if I went to a jurisdiction such as Guernsey, for example, or Jersey, you will see much, much lower uses of reserve powers. Right. Um, you know, in, in Asia, set law reserve powers is, is by far and away the most common way 
um, of um, clients of set laws uh, exercising their control. It's a very direct way to do it. Um, uh, and it's a very effective way to do it in relation to investments. Um, but also uh, clients will, will, will often want control in other areas as well. And because of the flexibility that you've got, the reason for that flexibility is because the, the, you know, what we're talking about with trust is a relationship between set law and trustees. So that relationship can be defined in the trust document. So you yeah. can identify and bespoke what kind of control you want. You can also, um, as you mentioned there as well, the, the power to appoint and remove directors at the yeah. underlying company level. So you can also tailor your constitutional documents at the corporate level as well to ensure control is where it needs to be. And of course, you've got the age old issue of, of if you have too much control, is that going to be a problem from an asset protection point of view or a tax point of view? Um, so, so a good advisor is going to be discussing the, the, the downsides of having too much control. But I think take away from a trust perspective, you've got a lot of flexibility built in to be able to carve out what you want. Right. Well, we also get this rather odd thing of having what's called a Bartlett clause in the mix. And that, that seems to sort of try to cut off responsibility at the trustee level for, for any of the, the sort of uh, activities of the underlying directors of the underlying companies is that your understanding of how Bartlett clauses are, are tending to be used? And yes. Sorry, Bartley, so for those of you who are familiar with trusts, then then you'll be aware that that that, that case of Bartlett versus Bartley Bank um, uh, provided that the trustee has this high-level supervisory responsibility over the assets of that trust. So one of those incidents of that is that you is that the trustee needs to know what's going on in its underlying companies, um, which of course, from a, um, a, a, a client and trustee perspective in the modern world, that's not particularly advantageous. So great in the old school kind of trusts, but where you've got a, a set law that's still alive, wanting to say, put a family business into the trust and wanting to really control what's going on, um, this, the, the trustee having this high level supervisory responsibility was something that was a problem. Um, and so what you found is that uh, um, the, the anti-Bartlett clause came up and started getting drafted into trust deeds, which basically said the trustees do not need to, uh, unless they have actual notice of some fraud or wrongdoing, they don't have to look at what's going on in the underlying company. The problem is that, is that the courts have been a bit inconsistent in how far they're willing to allow the trustee back on. And so as a consequence of that, you did see um, jurisdictions such as the BVI come in um, with specific uh, trusts, in that case, the Vista Trust, um, which was all about the trustee not having a responsibility to look at underlying companies. But this, this, this problem of how far does the supervisory responsibility go is, is, a, is a real today issue for trustees. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so I think the mix here is that as with all things trust, it can be quite flexible. You can create the trust where the trustee has minimal uh, interference, where a lot of reserve powers are put in, or you could put it in such a way that the trustee is disconnected from the underlying company and the directors of the underlying entity can have more of a say in the practical side. So it just shows 
that the amount of work that's been done over the decades of use of trusts in the modern context allows you a fair play uh, of, of um, intermixing provisions to allow a tailor-made solution for clients and their governance mechanism, the way that they wish the trust to be, be modeled. From a PPLI perspective, uh, looking at it, uh, going, going through this control aspect, because it is so critical, the question being asked is methods to control the underlying company and its investments, and also uh, things like removal, appointment removal and remuneration of the directors of the underlying company, and the investment policy guidelines that they'll be following uh, going forward, given that the, in this case, the policyholder has given up or divested themselves of the shares in the company, obviously the, the, the control aspects will be quite critical. So I'd invite Peter to just sort of canter through, how is this dealt with in a PPLI policy? How is this control aspect, which is so obsessive in the marketplace, how do we deal with it in the PPLI context? Yeah, well, one of the nice things about the insurance, uh, using insurance with planning is that you don't have the, the problem that trustees have, which is the whole uh, fiduciary responsibility. And although you know the um, you make the point very well that um, you know things like the Bartlett language and so on have, have um, minimised some of the difficulties for trustees, you know we've still seen court cases just in the last two or three years on the subject of Bartlett and whether trustees don't have a an overriding responsibility. So the trust world, the waters are sort of slightly muddied with this fiduciary duty, and, and the the beauty of the sort of contractual approach. Is that it's very clear who's got uh, what responsibility, um, and um, the policyholder has most of it, right? And um, and uh, has has tremendous power just to sort of call the shots. Um, so I think you're, it's a very interesting point about um, removal uh, and remuneration of directors, because although the policyholder has pretty much the, the all the rights over the policy, including cancelling the thing. For the day-to-day -day operations, you do have a situation where the, the shareholder of the company is actually the insurance carrier. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in theory, the, the shareholder would have the, the power and authority to remove directors and so on. Um, although in practice, they don't because they're not really interested in, um, in getting involved at that level. Um, so how that is documented, I think, uh, you know, you, perhaps, um, Yannick might want to, cop to, to comment, but um, I don't think it's documented. I think it's more by agreement that the, the insurance company is just hands off um, on that area. But, but Yannick, perhaps uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I think there are different ways basically to do that. Um, uh, first of all, um, the, the client can basically tell the insurance company um, to uh, waive the voting rights back. And obviously, if the client has the voting rights or his lawyers, etc., that gives back a lot of control. Um, additionally, um, what we see more and more, there is actually a kind of director agreements or mandates basically uh, implemented from insurance companies, which give certain rights, etc., which needs to be signed off by the client. And therefore, obviously, it gives back a lot of uh, control to the client that he can say, okay, these are now the directors which should be assigned. Um, and these are their rights and obligations, etc. And so they're more and more involved in a, I would say, a day to day basis as well. I mean, you know, one of the aspects on trusts, and if we use it from a, from a sort of Southeast Asia perspective, um, 
one of the, the uses could have been obviously family business succession planning. And inevitably within that context, there'll be quite complex governance rules that are being agreed between the, the, the family members as to who, how control is to be exerted, who can participate, and how can they benefit from these things, and, and looking very carefully at people abusing their positions. And these are the general sort of governance compass issues that usually come up. But what I'm understanding is that if I try to recreate a family business within a PPLI, uh, outside of the trust, but just into a PPLI, that in effect, I would need to have collateral arrangements put in place with the life company in order to affect that sort of sophisticated multi-generational governance. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. I think in the end, I see it very similar like with the with the trust, because obviously you have the trustee holding the assets here, you have the insurance company, so you need to implement the same uh, mechanisms. Though what I have to mention here as well, obviously it depends, it's very jurisdictional driven, if you can even hold really operating companies to that extent, because um, there are certain jurisdictions which don't allow that specifically for PPLI, certain others, they are more flexible. Uh, but other, otherwise, I would say the mechanism you can really build in similar like with a trust. Is it right to say that the same admonition that we had at the beginning when, when Peter was outlining the, the PPLI policies, be careful what, how much you reserve out back to the client in the same way as be careful of how much you squeeze the life cover to be at, let's say, 1% in the sort of post-COVID environment where potentially tax administrators are looking carefully at whether or not these are bona fide structures. That's something that you worry about where clients want to exert the same level of control that they want to on a trust, but they, they try and test whether or not a PPLI can also perform in the same way. Uh, absolutely. I think that's actually crucial with PPLI because that's exactly what we have seen in the past in the US happening in the 90s. We have seen it in the early 2000s where people have kind of set up these insurance wrappers, uh, which I don't like. PPLI is not an insurance wrapper. An insurance wrapper usually stands for non-compliant products, in my opinion, where they basically just went somewhere, Bermuda, Liechtenstein or Luxembourg or wherever, bought a product and didn't think about the actual regulation in their home country. Obviously, this has now changed a lot. Now you really, even if you have an Indonesian client, you need to set up the policy according to the Indonesian rules and think about what is compliant there. And that's why it's so crucial to have guys like uh, Michael um, also in the boat who exactly know how it needs to be structured, what needs to be fulfilled. So. It is an open architecture. You're very flexible. You can do everything, but you need to really stick to the rules to make it compliant. Okay. We just sort of, sort of high level comparison between the two in terms of looking at control. Trusts, it's a well trodden path. I think PPLI is fair to say that it's an emerging area. There's some level of restriction. You have to be careful that you don't inadvertently invalidate the policy or at least. You know, put it into some level of distress if you're pointing into a jurisdiction that doesn't want you to do that but it's possible to do it through contractual arrangements or collateral contractual arrangements within the trust it's a little bit more straightforward and the mixing is, is a little bit more straightforward but it's not to say that you can't do it so it's it is what it is in terms of uh, sort of using the contract as a as a, a sort of holding vehicle um, you just need to be careful within the trust it's probably more um, sort of typical and more widely trodden. Zach, I think one point that's worth making just on that <coughs> control point is that some of the limitations for control uh, mm. with a trust 
are around you know the validity of the thing, right? Um, whereas um, the valid the sort of the limitations, if you like, um, around the policy, um, really to you know refer back to Yannick's point that uh, the limitations really come from the result you're trying to achieve in the jurisdiction that is relevant. So if you're trying to achieve a legitimate tax result in the US or a legitimate tax result in Europe or Japan or anywhere, um, that's going to be the, the, the thing that gives you the limitation on what you can and cannot do typically. So it's, it's a little different from um, the limitations that you have in the trust area, which tend to come from uh, more the- Yeah. Um, the yeah. If you go over the top with the trust, you'll end up with a, a nomination, nothing more, or you'll end up everything being held effectively for the, the power holder. So yeah. it's true. And, and the jurisdictions have struggled with the mix of powers that you can reserve within the trust um, and, and still have it as a bona fide trust going forward. So you're, you're absolutely correct. Okay. Okay. Benefits. Now, this is fairly simple. In terms of the trusts, you can have reserve powers that can allow that uh, distributions are made at the direction of a settler or a power holder you can use trustee discretions it's with respect to the class of beneficiaries which can be extremely wide uh, in terms of distributions and distributions can be either straight up cash distributions or appointments and the appointments can be cash loan shares or indeed they can be absolute contingent or you can create subtrust so within the trust context is it right you know that we have such a broad optionality as it respects benefits that can be conferred across to beneficiaries but marcus from your perspective uh, when you when when we're looking at distributions from trust, is it really that much sophistication, or is it really just looking at cash distributions in practice, or do we get into very complex sort of re-engineering through contingent interests and subtrusts? What tends to be the case in the market? Well, I mean, most of it is cash, to be uh, to be fair. Um, the but certainly there there are occasions where you will see 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 loans and 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 in specie distributions and that kind of thing. Um, and that is driven by all sorts of different reasons, including tax. Um, but you know, generally speaking, you, you, it, it's cash distributions. Right. And it, it tends to be a class of beneficiaries rather than life interest or life tenants or income interests. It, it tends to be broad classes of beneficiaries. It seems to be the norm. Yes, uh, that's a fair point. And, and it also tends to be settler interested trusts. So we don't have the sort of uh, settler exclusions that we would expect from sort of high tax jurisdictions. Is that uh, also? I mean, uh, naturally, being, being in Singapore, um, Hong Kong, um, we have the luxury of, of, of a pretty simple tax regime when it comes to trusts. So we don't need to get too complex when it comes to that. Okay. Now, from a PPLI perspective, if we're looking at policyholder distributions, policy surrender, beneficiary distributions, and then the distribution type, cash, loan, or shares. I think the general sort of um, point here, I think we'll ask Peter to kick off as usual. Um, a policyholder distribution, is that a surrender effectively of, a, of the cash value or the premium? Or how, what is actually going on there when you have a policyholder distribution? Yeah, it'll be um, typically a, a partial surrender of the policy um, or a total surrender of the policy um, to. Um, uh, could be to the beneficiaries or, or uh, the policyholder actually has the right to cancel the whole thing um, and, uh, and, take the, and take the funds back. Um, where there may be um, a restriction could be uh, if there has been an irrevocable nomination of beneficiaries, which the policyholder may have done 
um, in order to, um, for tax reasons or to protect or to protect himself against creditors. In some jurisdictions, it may be necessary to uh, make an irrevocable nomination of beneficiaries, in which case the policyholder would still have the right to to instruct a partial or total redemption, but then the benefit would go to the nominated beneficiaries. Um, but it's, it's essentially it's pretty straightforward. The distribution could be in cash or it could be in specie. And in fact, we have been um, uh, we have been developing some solutions where insurance carriers can hold onshore assets of clients in certain countries. Um, and then with the ownership of those assets, those onshore assets, they add significant life cover in the offshore world. And then after the lifetime of the life assured, the, the cash uh, life benefits fall into an offshore trust for the next generation, whereas the onshore asset, assets are then distributed in specie. So um, you know, there are, there's a lot of kind of uh, little tailored solutions that one can do in this area, um, but it's, it's, uh, you can do both. All of the above uh, is the answer there. Okay, so I think from just a, a sort of distribution standpoint, um, looking at the, there seems to be a, quite a, a similarity between the two. It doesn't seem to be much uh, different. Uh, obviously, the, the, the surrender aspect is the mechanics of it, but you achieve the same result. So I think in, in terms of um, uh, any big difference, there doesn't seem, appear to be any that's uh, revealed by this. I suppose the, the issue is that with the trust, obviously you can have a greater level of uh, resettlement, as it were. So there's some sophistication on the distribution, whereas with a PPLI, you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that um, uh, level of sophistication on the post-distribution structuring. But otherwise, it seems to be quite similar. Asset protection. So looking at this from a context of the set law, uh, divorce community property. Uh, so divorce is a set law, um, looking at nuptial settlement variations, divorce powers to claw back assets and trust and community property rights, assets and trust. Um, again, very quickly, Marcus, on these, these are the, the frontline risks that we encounter with, with trusts. And uh, nuptial settlements is something that uh, comes out of the UK Matrimonial Causes Act. It's not been widely adopted in, in, in Asia, the concept of a nuptial settlement. So the divorce courts have generally not been had to trouble themselves with that in Asia. Um, but the divorce court powers to claw back assets that they, you put into trust in contemplation of divorce and the community property rights to assets in trust. Those are live risk, particularly community property if you have Indonesians or let's say Filipino couples. Um, what, what, uh, what's the, the, the general sort of um, consensus here in terms of the risks of trusts being attacked uh, by these sorts of devices where you have a marriage breakdown yeah i mean very much jurisdiction specific now when we when we consider the 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 value of trusts when it comes to divorce so um you know it's widely known how you know how aggressive the family court is in england for example about clawing back or varying um trusts to affect both parties um, in, in Singapore as well, um, you do have uh, the, the right under the Women's Charter to um, uh, claw back assets under a trust. Um, generally speaking, though, um, if you've settled a trust with your own assets before marriage, um, those assets are, are protected against um, a later divorce. 
Um, the issue of, of uh, community property is obviously extremely important. Um, and, and it's the wider issue, I think, I think um, uh, before this, um, uh, Peter made a very good point about uh, trustees need to be concerned about the fact that when a, when a set law purports to transfer assets to a trust, and I mentioned earlier that need to ensure that those assets are his, that particularly is important in the um, divorce context, because if it turns out that that was matrimonial property, being transferred into a trust by one of the parties, then you may find that later that that property is 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 subject to clawback as well. So um, certainly, um, uh, I mean, trusts are a valid um, uh, asset protection device for divorce planning as well. But you've got to be very careful about how you do that, making sure you're not putting in matrimonial property at the time, and then making sure that um, uh, you haven't done the done the trust and sort of contemplation of marriage or anything like that. Yeah, and generally community property, the, the firewall protections around trusts, even in uh, sort of advanced international financial centers, generally they'll protect against community property because it's property you never had in the first place. So they don't generally protect that. From a PPLI perspective, we run the same scenario. Um, presumably, divorce courts have power to effectively get hold of or assign the policy as they wish in part as part of the divorce settlement. But crucially, on the community property aspects, if the life company or the, 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 say the, the broker is aware that the property being put into the PPLI is actually matrimonial property, and there is a community regime, is there a risk that the, um, that the policy um, holding these assets that they can be attacked on a community property rights claim? What do we see in that? Yes, but I'm going to let Yannick answer this because he comes from the, the community property world, coming from the civil law jurisdictions of Europe. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, you know, obviously that is uh, kind of a topic and it's a very, very tricky question uh, with community property. And I've, I have the impression that's a topic which is not uh, widely enough discussed in the PPLI space. There are certain jurisdictions which it's more relevant, but it's obviously super tricky. I can explain you one case Obviously, for the preparation of this seminar, I have actually really discussed with a couple of partners and um, there is obviously very different aspects coming in. And one very interesting case that we actually had of one of our partners is in Germany, where there was also community property. Um, the transfer into the policy came from a joint account, husband and wife. And um, then the husband set up the policy on himself, policy or the insured person. They did this decision together to do that. The interesting aspect here is obviously you could think, okay, it's still community property, etc. Though the tax authority actually then came in um, from a very different angle and said, this was a gift from the husband to the wife and you have a free allowance in Germany of 500,000 euro, everything above is taxed. So there, are, I, I would say there are lots of traps around. Um, I think in the end, still the asset protection, how it's set up with the PPLI and we go uh, more into detail later is, if you protect your family for the policy, then typically the courts where the insurance company is based um, sticks to that. And we have even seen a work that actually working out with divorce cases where the beneficiaries were protected and then the court where the insurance company was based 
protected kind of the right of the children to be protected versus the right of the wife to get actually half of the policy. So it's still effectively a, a, a bit of an emerging area. Absolutely. Not enough going on, but yeah. Okay. okay. Now, looking at set law bankruptcy, here the usual risks are that we have a, a clawback right. So set laws creating trusts just to effectively avoid their creditors. Uh, as I understand it, in Singapore, we've got effectively a, um, a five-year sort of period during which these can be at risk. Other jurisdictions have much shorter periods when it comes to trusts, two years would be typical. Um, Marcus, from your perspective, um, asset protection trusts and, and creditor clawback rights, uh, it's not, uh, it, it's certainly from a Singapore perspective, Hong Kong perspective, these are not asset protection jurisdictions, is that right? Uh, yeah, so, so um, uh, no, that's exactly right. The, um, uh, those, those jurisdictions that um, claim to be asset protection jurisdictions tend to have, as you mentioned, um, very short, Periods of time, two years or or, or such. Um, they also they also make all sorts of roadblocks for the creditor. So if you, if if a client is specifically looking around for asset protection, probably Singapore and, and Hong Kong aren't, aren't, aren't the best places to choose. From a PPLI um, perspective, so we're looking at the, the the sort of creditor protections for creating a PPLI. Obviously, this is all topical because. You know, with, with COVID, there are going to be obviously high net worths that are going to be in trouble. Okay, They may not be high net worth anymore. And they'll be looking at some ways in which they can protect their assets from the potential of creditors coming against them. That's not to say that they wouldn't look at trusts or any other sort of platforms to do that. But from a PPLI perspective, is there an inbuilt creditor protection um, uh, within that? Or is it, is it sort of open architecture in terms of the rights of creditors to come against the policy? It's very, very jurisdictional specific, Zach. and and it's very important when um, you know when when clients are looking to to buy insurance. It's very important that they get the right advice uh, on this kind of thing, as well as of course tax. Um, so you know the approach of just going and buying a product that a, that a carrier has, um, you know, can go wrong when 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 it gets stress tested with things like. Um, you know, the community property and the bankruptcy and so on. Bankruptcy in particular <clears throat> varies a lot by jurisdiction. Um, there are some jurisdictions where um, to protect your, your assets, then you have to, as I mentioned slightly earlier, um, make an irrevo irrevocable nomination of beneficiaries, uh, usually to family members. Um, but I know that um, Yannick is aware of other jurisdictions where you have much greater protection. So. Uh, Again, I'll invite Yannick to comment, perhaps. Yeah, obviously, it's very jurisdictional driven um, here. Um, uh, it's the, the, the asset protection laws in the PPLI space, they are very, very um, differently um, drafted, I would say, um, where you have what is obviously very crucial is how long does the PPLI need to be in place um, to really get the full protection where in general you can say Europe um, is 12 months um, on the other side there are certain jurisdictions in the Caribbean they have maybe stronger protection already after three months in place but the crucial thing is obviously always that um, you haven't just set it up to kind of put away the assets or you knew already that you're going bankrupt or the litigation is coming up 
um, or it's it's uh, stolen money or whatever, then obviously it doesn't help. But it can be a super uh, great asset protection tool um, if you do it for the right reason and if you set it up at the right moment. So the fraudulent conveyance considerations would still generally apply? Absolutely. Okay, just going through quickly on trustee liquidation and uh, trust fund. I, I think I can deal with this very quickly. Uh, trustee liquidation won't have an impact on the trust fund. The only thing that will happen is any trustee rights of subrogation will then be normally respected. So anything that's owed to the trustee can then be extracted. But otherwise, the trustee uh, going bankrupt or liquidating, in this case, um, would be neither here nor there from the trust perspective. From a life company perspective, a life company going into liquidation, of course, everyone's worried that you know, um, with COVID and with the claims and all the rest, maybe some life companies may not survive. I don't know whether that's a right um, sort of assertion or not. What is the situation with respect to um, my PPLI policy and my company shares? Are they going to be absorbed with um, general creditors of the life company? Or how, how does it work within the PPLI perspective if the life company goes under? It, uh, as a generalization, uh, it's very analogous to the trust. So. Um, PPLI assets would be protected in, in virtually all insurance jurisdictions. Um, the only thing that may vary a little bit would be where there has been life cover um, added, um, you know, would, would the, uh, what would happen with the underlying portfolio is that uh, another carrier would be instructed to take over the, um, the policy. Uh, where there was a life cover commitment, there may be some uh, negotiation in some jurisdictions of whether the, exactly the same terms and conditions would apply. Um, uh, but yeah, it's very jurisdictional specific, specific, I think. Generally speaking, it's, everything's protected. Yeah, well, I think generally the, the, we've basically seen the same thing coming out. I think the PPLI is seen as a, a little bit more asset protection geared. Uh, obviously, some trust jurisdictions allow it, but we can have as low as three months. Obviously, fraudulent conveyance could override that. But uh, in terms of the asset protection itself, um, you can probably be a bit more aggressive on a PPLI than, than with a trust. Community property, generally the same problem with the trusts as it is with PPLI, so an emerging area. And that's not to be um, sort of a surprise. On divorce court-wise, uh, again, um, clawback is within the trust domain and use of the policy or surrendering the policy or assigning it is well within the remit of a divorce court, so no change there. Okay, taxation. Okay, preliminary issues on the validity of a, of, of a policy. I think before we even talk about the, the tax treatment of the policy itself, we need to get happy that the policy will be respected by uh, a relevant tax in, uh, sort of a, a administration. And, and here, obviously, Michael's going to be talking a great deal on this uh, going forward. We're going to be relying quite heavily on looking at how things are developing in Indonesia when we discuss some of these things. But before that, I'll just kick off by sort of running through, in terms of the life cover element, if we're looking at it from, let's say, an Indonesian perspective, where are we? Are we more than 1%, more than 15%, more than 20%? Uh, Michael, what, what is the for a, for a policy that's looking into the Indonesia market? Um, thanks, Zach. Um, maybe just to make a couple of general comments first and and you know first is obviously i echo peter's comments from earlier um when it comes to taxation it is going to be very jurisdiction specific and you know when we look across the region you just got such a vast sort of spectrum of 
tax systems, you know, from from less developed, you know, to very sophisticated, very mature, you know, and, and Peter talked about Australia at that end. So you've got, you know, different levels of detail and regulation, guidance, case law, et cetera. Um, and then each, you know, you, you can see different approaches to anti-avoidance, you know, very formal general anti-avoidance rules, GARs, such as in Australia, or even in sort of um, India now, you know, to more you know, general substance over form type principles, which, you know, um, are a little bit less kind of prescriptive in terms of when they would apply. Um, so you've kind of got that spectrum. And, and this is going to sort of you know, be a theme throughout the whole sort of tax discussion that, you know, issues such as validity or, you know, whether there's a, you know, how you look at a tax event, et cetera, it's all going to sort of be very specific to the jurisdiction. Um, but, but to take, you know, Indonesia as an example, um, you know, there is no specific tax regulation or guidance on this question. Um, I think the view, you know, to date in the market is that, you know, 1% would be acceptable. Um, but as I said, you know, that that is in the absence of, you know, specific provisions, specific guidance, you know, to date. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing when you think about a jurisdiction like Indonesia, which I think, Zach, it's, you know, why it's such an interesting one to sort of call out to sort of apply, you know, the, sort of some of these issues or test some of these issues, um, is that, you know, it was really only during the tax amnesty that the tax authorities started to develop an understanding of things like trusts and insurance. Um, and, um, you know, there was a sort of, I think, you know, some sort of expectation at the time that that might lead to more specific guidance, more specific law and regulation around this, but we haven't necessarily seen that. So it still is, you know, sort of, you know, fairly, um, you know, sort of looked at in the absence of very specific you know, details. Um, you know, the, the other thing in an Indonesian context, I mean, whilst there's no sort of specific, you know, guard, there is a substance over, you know, form principle, you know, how that would apply in this context. I think to date, it hasn't been sort of viewed as, you know, disturbing, you know, the categorization. Um, but I think, you know, to Peter's point earlier, you know, as authorities become sort of, you know, more sophisticated, you know, as, you know, for instance, you know, through CRS exchange, et cetera, you know, perhaps there'll be sort of, you know, um, you know, a finer analysis around some of these points. But, but at the moment, I think the broader market view is, you know, 1% would be acceptable. Right. And in terms of the actual cash value itself, do we have a, a mandatory cash value amount or restricted policyholder control? Do we have any sophistication around how to deal with the, the sort of uh, investment side of the policy when it comes from an Indonesian standpoint, just as, to give us an example? Yeah, um, certainly not, not as we would see it today, no. Right. All right, so looking at just the creation, Sorry, Michael, is that all right? No, yep, no. Okay. So looking at trust creation, taxation, tax implication, creating transferring assets into trust, and the CRS reporting, mm. just looking at it from the context of, uh, let's say, an Indonesian set or creating a mm. trust, how is that treated? Is that transparent or is that seen as an event, a chargeable event? Yeah, I mean, not, yeah, I mean, on the face of it, when you've got a, a disposal, you know, you, you, your first expectation would be that's a tax event, and if tax can arise, you know, capital gains tax or otherwise, you would sort of think about that issue. Um, but in Indonesian, in an Indonesian context, you know, you've got this threshold question: is you know, how do you look at, how do you view the view the trust? Um, and again, this is kind of highlights the the point earlier about you know the amnesty and you know in the context of of the amnesty law and the subsequent regulation and Q and As. Um, you know, the tax authorities, you know, sort of felt that, you know, trust should be seen as, as a look through or transparent. So, you know, putting it another way, you know, the, the set law will still be seen to be the tax owner of the assets that are transferred into trust and, and the incumbent gains that sort of flow from that and, and ultimately get distributed would also be sort of um, attached to the set law. Um, 
you know, interestingly, you know, despite that, you would sort of think, well, if you got the transfer in and it's still seen, you know, that the set law still seemed to be the tax owner, you wouldn't expect a taxable event at that point. Um, but yeah, as I understand it, you know, there, you know, there is a, a view that um, irrespective that, you know, there would be a tax on, on a disposal into the trust. Okay, from the CRS perspective, I mean, uh, it will very much depend on whether or not the family trust um, is seen as an investment entity. So whether or not the settler is seen as an account holder. If it's a passive NFV trust, then all that will happen is the settler will then be a controlling person. So it will be either one of the two will occur um, in, in terms of the classification and then the reporting trail that will then see. From policy perspective, so taxation implications in creating a subsequent asset for EPLI policy. Look, again, using the Indonesian example, so we have policyholders subscribing in kind. Again, how how is that taxable in in Indonesia? I mean, the the, um, the the there would be a disposal from an Indonesian tax perspective, and if there's a gain, you know, that would be that would be subject to tax. Um, you know, the interesting point again in terms of you know looking at Indonesia is that you know the the you know the premium will be satisfied via the transfer of the assets, and Indonesia, you know distinctly from from any tax event on the disposal you know they view the payment of a, a premium by a resident to a non-resident to be subject to 10 percent withholding tax um, if the carrier however is in a jurisdiction that has a tax treaty uh, with indonesia such as hong kong or singapore you know the the insurance company would be entitled to a zero percent rate of withholding tax under the treaty on the basis that the premium would be business profits you know to the insurance company um, you know when it comes though to you know to the transfer of, of these assets and, and the example we've been working with today is um, is shares, you obviously you've got to look at the location of the of the company and whether there would be you know tax you know consequences of the transfer in that location, you know, issues such as you know stamp duty at the most basic or you know securities transaction tax. Um, you know, to you know whether or not um, you know that jurisdiction could also assert some sort of jurisdiction to tax the gain, you know, from an income tax perspective. So you've really got to look at sort of both sets of considerations when you're looking to, you know, to, to transfer assets in specie and, and also to transfer the assets. And the same would have been true in terms of, or is true in terms of, you know, transfers into the trust. You know, depending on where that where that company is located, where the shares are located. Right. Right. Okay. And in terms of the from the CRS perspective, uh, the policy holder, the cash value uh, policy, will be an account holder. So it will be the, the annual um, value will be taken as well as any distributions that are made during the relevant calendar year. So income and gains from a, from a trust perspective. So this is looking at effectively a CFC analysis. So we're looking at attribution of income and gains to the settlor and beneficiaries where there's not been an actual distribution to them. So an attribution instead. How does that, how is that looking? Particularly if there's, as I understand it, there's been some developments in Indonesia that may impact this. Yeah, I, mean, I think in, in terms of this area generally, I mean, you know, you know, be it Indonesia or otherwise, if the set law is still viewed to be the, you know, the, the tax owner, you know, what, you know, what does the law say? What does the tax law say in terms of attributing, you know, income and gains on a current year basis? But if we take the, um, you know, the example we've, we've been working with today, um, you know, the trust is, you know, seen to be looked through, you're then getting to a company, you know, from an Indonesian perspective, you know, that company would be a controlled foreign corporation or a, or a CFC. Um, and, you know, the implication of that, even if it's carrying on an active business, is that the accounting profits that accrue to that entity would be attributed um, in this case, you know, to the settler on, a, on an annual basis. And, then, and that's how, you know, that, that's how CFC you know, rules work. They, 
you know, they seek to prevent a deferral of tax by attributing, you know, profits, even if they haven't been distributed. Um, and to date, you know, that has been 100% of the profits would be attributed, um, in this case, to the set law. You know, what's been interesting, um, the uh, Indonesia has just completed a tax reform process, which led to um, the passing of an omnibus tax law by the parliament. And that was signed into effect by the president on the 2nd of November this year. So there are some interesting changes in terms of, you know, the CFC rules. So rather than attributing 100% back in this case um, to the said law, the attribution will only be 30%. Um, and then, you know, there's a, a separate sort of um, change, which says, well, to the extent that there is actually a, a dividend distributed you know, back into Indonesia, um, to the extent that that's reinvested, you know, that can you know, result in that dividend being being exempted from tax. I mean, Indonesia, in terms of the, you know, the the, the process of, of law reform, you know, the, the law itself is, you know, setting out more, more general principles. Um, regulation pursuant to that law will be issued within three months of it being signed into law by the president. So there's some detail that um, we're waiting on, which we would expect by um, early February. Um, but yeah, so some interesting developments in terms of um, in, in terms of Indonesia, and you know, given that there is a look through, you know, to the company and the company is a CFC. I mean, does it make a difference that it's uh, whether you have a revocable or irrevocable trust? Michael, still with us? Oh, I think he's fallen off. All right. I think what we'll do is I'll move on to other aspects of the, uh, the discussion, and if we have time, we'll come back to the taxation. Uh, if Michael's having difficulties, so. Uh I think we seem to have lost Michael. I think no is the answer to your, your question, Zach. Yes. yes. Uh, the other thing we didn't touch on, I think, is the CRS reporting, unless you're going to do it now. But Yeah, so I, I think what we'll do is it, we'll leave the tax bit, see if we can get back to it later on. We'll move on just to effectively the termination. So that's the last part of this. So trust revocation process and procedure, we'll, we'll let Michael, uh, if we have time, come back to that. From a CRS perspective, um, a termination of trust, if it's a financial institution trust or investment entity, then you'll have effectively a universal account closure occur uh, and then a distribution to the set law. Um, from the revocation process, that's generally has to be embedded in the trustee itself as a power. So that's how we would generally have that um, configure. From the policyholder, I'll just deal with this bit and then we can go back to the tax. So from a policyholder perspective, Michael, we'll just come back to you in a minute. We're just going to show sec. From a policyholder perspective, policy surrender, the process and procedure to surrender the policy. Um, I think we'll just ask Peter there. I suppose that's just a normal paper application by the uh, the relevant uh, policyholder to uh, have the, the policy. Is that right, or is there anything more to that? I think that's right, unless Yannick wants to add anything. No, shaking head. I think I think that's right. Okay, I think Michael, you'll chime in here and we'll, we'll see if we have time to go back. On the tax implications of a policy surrender. So here we have, let's say, using the analogy of Indonesia, an individual who's surrendering the policy. Uh, what are mm -hmm. the tax effects of that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an you know, interesting question. And again, sort of the omnibus tax law, you know, is relevant to that. So, I mean, there has been um, an exemption in the Indonesian tax law um, with respect to proceeds, you know, from from life, health, etc., insurance, um, and the view that that had been taken is that that exemption would would sort of cover, um, you know, partial or complete surrender proceeds. 
Um, so, you know, the, when there has been a surrender of a PPLI, that had been, you know, the view had been that that, you know, had been tax exempt in, in Indonesia, you know, notwithstanding that that, that surrender value would, re you know, would reflect, um, you know, principally investment gains. Um, the, the omnibus tax law has has actually changed, you know, amended that exemption so that it, it doesn't apply to, you know, um, investment gains. It doesn't apply in the context, for instance, of partial surrender or surrender. It really now is only available with respect to the to the payout that would occur on death. So that that's kind of quite an interesting change from a from a um, PPLI perspective. I mean, the policy itself is not seen to be a CFC. Um, so, for instance, you're not going to have that attribution we talked about before. Yeah. The technology failed me. Um, so, you know, it's still still interesting from from that perspective. Um, but again, as I was mentioning before, um, we're, we're still we're in that period where we're still waiting for more detail in terms of you know how the law is going to be applied in this situation, and and certainly that aspect, um, you know, um, you know, at a local level, you know, different of the um, associations, are, you know, are, are sort of you know making different representations around that, <clears throat> you know, if nothing else, <clears throat> you know, at a, at a domestic level, you know, um, investment link policies are, are very popular. So, um, so I think we have to see the detail on that. But certainly, as the the, the way that the law has been framed, um, you know, if you did have a, a surrender, a partial surrender, for instance, you know, that would then become a tax event from an Indonesian perspective. From a CRS perspective, it would be an account closure. I think the interesting aspect here would be whether or not you have a prior distribution or a post closure distribution, because that will make a difference on the CRS reporting. If it's viewed as a prior distribution, then that will go in as part of the report. If it's a post-closure distribution, then that won't appear on the report. It's a jurisdiction as to how they treat that uh, from a CRS perspective. Okay, now just looking at the insurable, the actual insurable event occurring, so death of the insured. So the distribution implications uh, of this, uh, presumably the, the policy then effectively comes to an end and the, there's, a, there's a payout to the beneficiaries. But the tax implications on the actual insurable event occurring, so the death of the, the insured, um, mm. how, is the, how is that shaping up? Is that free or do we have a charge? Well, the, I mean, in an Indonesian context, you know, the, the omnibus tax law, notwithstanding, you know, the amendments that are being made, <clears throat> that distribution should be exempt from tax. Right. And it doesn't matter if the funds are repatriated to Indonesia or they're kept no. in Singapore. <clears throat> it, does, it makes no difference to that tax analysis. Is that right? right yeah. yeah, yeah, correct. Right. So from a CRS perspective, you probably have a policyholder closure, account closure at that point. For the beneficiaries, generally PPLIs uh, or just insurance, cash value insurance policies generally, uh, beneficiaries can kept uh, can be kept off as account holders unless yeah, the, the sort of carrier has actual notice that they are reportable persons. At this point, however, where they are going to receive distributions, they have to be treated as account holders, and they will be subject to CRS, um, the full the full gamut of the CRS. And there it'll be a rather odd one because there'll be an account, a sort of account opening as well as uh, effectively a, a a distribution and then an account closure because the the whole process will happen simultaneously from the CRS perspective. Okay, so what I propose we do is in the combination structures, uh, as we go through them, um, we'll, we'll, we'll go through so we get to the end and then we'll see if we have enough time to then we, we come back to the, the couple of minor bits on the taxation that we didn't have a chance to do. So on combination structures, we're looking at the use of trusts and PPLI at the same time in combination with each other and we're trying to assess which is best. So we'll look at uh, PPR policy assignment into a trust 
And then we'll look at PPI policy where the trust is a beneficiary. We'll compare the two and see which, what, what sort of wrinkles come out of this when we, when we do this analysis. So policy assignment, this is basically it. We'll have a beneficiary policyholder, uh, individual, and then they'll assign into a trust. So they'll take the policy and they'll assign it across. And then these are the considerations that will come out of this because the trustee now holds the policy. So process and procedure for the assignment itself, the trustee obligations that then ensue as a result of that policy assignment, uh, should the trustee be considering surrendering, getting distributions, should they think about reinvesting and getting out of the policy? How do they fund the policy if they need to make payments? And then the underlying investment liability that the trustee may take on if the policy proves uh, effectively non-performing or it doesn't, doesn't actually realize any, any level of investment performance. So uh, I think I'll just invite um, Peter to have a, have a think through of, or help us with the assignment process and what's involved in that. And I think um, sort of Marcus, uh, we, we can just sort of discuss what the obligations will be of the trustee after it's assigned across and, and then just open it generally for discussion. So kicking off first with Peter. Sure, and, and maybe if I could just take 30 seconds, I think that in the future, we are going to see a lot of combinations of trusts with PPLI as a kind of a, a very, very useful um, planning structure for the future in Asia. Um, and I can just pick out, um, before I specifically answer that question, uh, a couple of the advantages that trusts have over PPLI, they can last forever, potentially, uh, much longer than uh, a PPLI policy, which ends with the death of the life assured. Distribution could be staggered over generations. Um, for asset protection, a set law can remain potentially a beneficiary of, a, of an irrevocable discretionary trust, but retain asset protection slightly easier than perhaps uh, with a trust. But the PPLI policy brings um, international recognition in civil law and common law jurisdictions, the ability to hold complex assets um, removed perhaps from fiduciary oversight of the trustee. And this comes back to Zach's question now, which I'll come back to. Um, we have, you avoid the CFC rules um, and you, you obtain clarity of taxation. So I do think we're going to see this combination happen a lot. I think in your examples that you've got the, the, the trustee being the, the policy holder, um, I think we'll probably see that um, less common perhaps than the trustee being the beneficiary of a policy, because that's a way of, of removing uh, some of the fiduciary oversight responsibility that you referred to um, until after the lifetime of the life assured when perhaps assets can just be distributed. But if you're asking specifically about the, um, the responsibility of the trustee as the policy holder, then I think we'd be looking to, to look to box it in with some equivalent of the Bartlett language in, in, the, trust, in the trust document. Because I think typically you'd want to attain the, the same sort of non-interference situation um, of a trustee. You, you wouldn't want to suddenly um, uh, encumber the trustee with all the responsibility of the underlying assets. Yeah, I mean, typically though, are the, are the, are the trustees actually configured to sort of ring fence the investment in that way? I mean, is that generally what you see? Marcus, from your perspective, when you've seen these, are the trustees generally ring fence so that the, the policy performance is neither here nor there from the trustees' perspective? Or do we end up with a situation where there's potentially um, some level of trustee oversight required from an investment standpoint? Um, yeah, I think, I think 
we, we would certainly want to, uh, as trustee, you'd certainly want to be bespoking the document a bit to make it a bit more um, uh, uh, protective in relation to the trustee's obligations. I mean, it does raise very interesting points if the trustee, so, so now what we've got is the scenario one is the policy is now an asset of the trust. So just like any other asset, the trustee has responsibilities of you know, good, good prudent management and that kind of thing of the asset. So the question becomes with a PPLI policy, you know, you, the, the, the assets of the PPLI policy are also going to be relevant for you to, if you get, when you're going to onboard them, you're going to need to onboard those, those, those assets to do diligence in relation to that and in relation to um, uh, the, the ongoing management you're going to have to consider um, are they good investments to have um, in the round. I don't think you can just say, oh, I have an insurance policy and, and that's the end of it. I think you'll have to look through that insurance policy to see what you've got. Yes, I think that the, the major message there is if you're going to have the trust holding the policy and not be a beneficiary uh, to start with, then you're going to have to tailor make the trustee obligations with, with respect to the investment responsibilities going forward. And you can do that. Obviously, you can draft that in. But if you just use an ordinary precedent D to do this, then you might well find the trustee in a position of oversight, having to think about whether or not this policy is actually right for the trust and also right for the beneficiaries, particularly if beneficiaries start to clamor for distributions and start to require some level of support. They'll start talking about, well, can't we just surrender it? Or can't we just do things with it? So I think this one requires some intervention to make sure that the trust documents are actually fit for purpose as a policy holder. And that's the, probably the main, the main message that comes across. So when we have the insurable event, we obviously have the transfer of costs to the trust of the underlying company shares. Um, we, we've discussed the process and procedure for this before the taxation effect. Um, uh, from, from Michael's perspective, if we're transferring across a normal PPLI policy into a trust, um, regardless of whether or not it's Indonesian connected, um, what's the tax effects of that, generally speaking? Well, I mean, it's really going to depend on the, the jurisdiction where the owner's located and, and how that would be viewed. Um, Singapore, no capital gains tax. Indonesia, you know, different scenario. Yeah. yeah. And then here, because it's a pour over, we don't necessarily have a strict set law as such because it's mm. pouring out of a policy. So the, the rules that you mentioned earlier about attributing um, income and gains and all the rest to the set law, how would that actually operate in this scenario? I don't know if you've, you've, you've come across it in practice. Uh, not in practice, but I mean, if we're thinking in an Indonesian context and the policy is held within the trust, whilst the trust would be looked through, the policy itself is not a CFC. So you would get that deferral. But then when it pours out, when it actually transfers from the policy into a trust, and then we're into a trust environment. Oh, no, that, that's what I was thinking about. You know, if, it's, if it's sitting within the trust environment and you've got an Indonesian set law, the policy is not a CFC. So whilst, you know, the set law, you're looking through the trust, you know, yeah. you're seeing then a PPLI policy. So you wouldn't have an attribution in that situation. Okay. I mean, from the CRS perspective, you'll, you'll have the usual thing, depending on whether or not the trust is an investment entity and it's reporting or will react accordingly. So looking at it from when, you, when you've got it actually into the trust, uh, I won't run through this, but it's basically the same considerations that come up in any other trust scenario. If it's a, a valuable company with valuable assets, you have to think about the overall governance framework within which the trust will operate. 
and not just a precedent document in all cases. And here you'll, you may look at protected committees and the ways in which beneficiaries can interact. So now this is the final example, a policy beneficiary. And in this case, we don't have a class of beneficiaries. Instead, we have a trust. And so the questions that come up in this is, what type of trust is this? A pilot trust, or is it going to be a pour over trust? What, how is that set up? Um, is it up and running alongside, parallel with the policy? And then what are the trustee obligations if they're just a beneficiary? And insofar as the policyholder is concerned, are they concerned about the beneficiaries at all? What's their obligations? Can they just get on with life, surrender, uh, have the policy at risk as in the usual way? Is there any interrelation or any difference? Because now we have a beneficiary that's a, a trust. So from, a, from the perspective of the trustee obligations, I'll invite Marcus. If the trust is simply a beneficiary of the policy, it doesn't hold the policy, it's just there as, as effectively a pour over device. Uh, what are the obligations now, as against what we said previously, where the, the, the trust actually is the policy holder and it's an asset of a financial asset of the trust? Yeah, now we're into a much safer territory for the trustee. So as a beneficiary of the of the um, uh, the policy, you, you don't have any um, uh, absolute obligations. Um, you um, will at some stage be benefit. Um, but effectively, it's a, it's a, if you like, it's a standby um, in terms of the obligations. So you have rights um, uh, as a beneficiary, but very <laughs> obligations. Right. And, and looking from the, the, the policyholder perspective, Peter, obviously the policyholder can just get on and do what they were doing beforehand um, without any consideration of the beneficiaries. Is that, is that the correct analysis? They don't have any obligations. Yeah, I think I mean, this, is, this is, I think, the, what's going to be the very common scenario going forward in many cases, because the policyholder is, in this case, is most likely to be the same person as the settlor of the trust. Um, they, they want to um, achieve certain tax benefits, tax deferral during their lifetime uh, with the policy. They may want to have assets that perhaps the trustee is not comfortable to take into a trust structure um, at this point, but, but um, they can place them quite easily under a, an offshore company into a, an insurance contract. Um, and life goes on as, uh, as before, but the, the policyholder has the benefit of knowing that after, after the life of the life assured, which may well be him as well, him or her, um, the assets will then fall into the trust. The trustees possibly will just distribute the unwanted assets and, and maybe continue to manage the, um, the financial assets and follow the, the, the existing terms of the trust for future generations. Um, it could, could be an existing trust. It could be um, a standby trust. And I think the food for thought for trustees is whether they want to be in the business of providing standby trusts um, yeah. becomes a business decision for such situations. Yeah. So I think there will be quite a few situations like this coming. Okay, I think looking at the transfer across, same issues that come up, the same issues as we mentioned in the previous, I do reiterate that if the trust has significant value, you will need to think about uh, governance controls and some level of sophistication after the policy is um, has paid out. So we shouldn't just watermark this as once the policy is paid out, we sort of wash our hands of of the client journey. Obviously, they then go into potentially a very sophisticated system, and we should consider that at the setup as well. So, looking at the I think basically we feel that beneficiary, uh, having the trust as a beneficiary, is a little bit safer from a liability risk and a little bit more straightforward. 
having the trust as a policyholder brings with it, unless you draft in and you, you, you create some bespoke provisions here, this creates more of a risk level for the, um, for the, 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 the overall profile of this uh, sort of combination structure. But it seems that, and from what Peter's saying, that the, the, the future for PPLI and trust combinations is really where the trust comes in as a beneficiary and sits alongside. The only issue that we have when we have trusts um, coming in in this way is until we have the insurable event, we are burning away our perpetuity period. If the trust is perpetual, then that's fine. We don't really care. But if it's 100 years, it's like, for instance, with Singapore, and we've, let's say, waited you know, 30 plus years for this to occur, we've burnt up quite a lot of the perpetuity period. So that would be the only sort of overriding consideration if we're using a jurisdiction that, that still has uh, perpetuity or trust period in effect. All right, so looking at the two, just some general comments now from, from us on this. Um, and I think we can probably do it within the, the context of the question and answers as well. I'll sort of stop sharing on this, bring us all together. Looking at the, the, the sort of uh, uh, trust on one side and the PPLI on the other, what would we say on balance, um, looking at it from a, a sort of um, asset protection vehicle or looking at it from the context of a succession vehicle or something that can hold complicated uh, sort of governance rules? How do we feel panel-wise this is all stacked up? Because from my perspective, the one thing I would say is the trusts seem to be a, a more stable platform for cross-generational planning, looking into beyond second, into third generation. Whereas I would say from a policy perspective, it confers a lot, it's a lot more deregulated. From the CRS perspective, it's much more straightforward. Uh, from the taxation perspective, it seems to be much more straightforward from the Indonesia side as well. So I would say that the trust is a more, provides a more, this is from my personal opinion on this, and of course we can all chime in, I would say the trust provides a, a little bit more longevity and stability in terms of if you are structuring multi-generationally going forward. However, looking at the policy, it has, because it's contract-based, it provides a lot more deregulation, a lot more um, uh, sort of tax benefits than the trust platform. So I think that would be the balance that I would, I would say. Um, what would, any, any comments from, from Peter on this when we do the overall assessment of, of how these things stack together? mute. Some people say I'm best on mute, actually. Um, overall, it's the combination, I think, that is incredibly powerful. I think if you're in the common, the, the common law world, the combination of a trust with PPLI, if you're in the civil law world, a combination of a foundation uh, with a PPLI, uh, incredibly powerful to combine the merits of both. Um, and, uh, and I hope that's um, food for thought for some of the attendees today. Any comments, Marcus, from you on, on, on out the, uh, the comparison? I agree, actually. Um, uh, I mean, it's fair to say that, that you know, as, as common law lawyers, we tend to only think about the trust solution. Um, and uh, going forward, it, it, the combination solution is, is, is very neat, um, particularly during the lifetime of the set law, when there are issues that are arising that are clearly of frustration to the set law, that that, that issue of of how much the needs to supervise the assets, for example, and get and sort of meddle in, in it if if the set law um, thinks that way, um, these sort of things um, are easily dealt with with a PLI kind of in the insurance approach. But from the accounting perspective, 
you're talking about successive generations, the trust really comes into its own. So that idea that trust is a beneficiary of the policy, I think is, is, a, is a very tidy one. Some, some sort of general comments, and I'll, I'll come back to Michael on this we missed on the, on the taxation side, but just some, some of the comments. Uh, obviously, a, a policyholder can be a company. That, that's, quite, um, that's quite sort of common, is that right? That we have an assignment. Obviously, a, a company can't be the originating policyholder. Is, is that right? It has to be an assignee. Is that correct? Or, or Yannick, is that not the case? Sorry, the, uh, the company can be a policyholder. Yeah, but it, Absolutely. An, does it have to be an assignee? No. It can just be of itself, right? Company straightforward, yeah, can be the policyholder. Can we change the beneficiaries? So the nominated beneficiaries, once it's up and running, can we, um, can we sort of change our mind that we want to have different beneficiaries going forward? Um, yeah, absolutely. Anytime, as long as it's not an irrevocable beneficiary clause. Um, so if you have a revocable beneficiary clause, the client, the policyholder can change it anytime, um, as many times as he wants. And uh, if you have an irrevocable beneficiary clause, you can still change it. But then typically the irrevocable beneficiaries, they need to agree and approve the change. And what happens where we have a policyholder pass away? If they've risen, if they've, they're, they're the one in the in the driving seat with these uh, with the, with the BPLI. What if we don't have a policyholder? Then what happens? A policy would be an asset in the estate of the deceased. If the policyholder is not the life assured, then the policy would be continuing, and the the policy itself would be an asset in the estate. Yeah, but so what would because we we've, we've got the policyholder having. A level of control. Um, how, how would that work if policyholder is not around? Would it would it then be that you you basically end up with a a sort of mechanism that becomes more closed? Typically, you can decide, and that's actually a very important point. If the policyholder is not equal to the insured person, um, you can in most policies you can decide who should basically become the policyholder once you pass away, because as Peter rightly said, otherwise it's the, it's the estate. And I've seen cases where this has not been clarified and then you have kind of eight people becoming the policyholder, typically the whole estate, and then they need to do all the decisions together, which can become very difficult. So, so it's crucial to decide and nominate somebody who takes over. Michael, from your perspective, looking at the, the, the new changes that are likely to be put into effect through regulation, what's the main takeaways that we can say from, from the insurance market in Singapore? Um, what, what's the main things that you would want people to, to take away from this? Um, maybe before touching on that, just, just wanted to make a couple of quick comments on the combination structure. And, and the comments that you know Peter and Marcus just made, I, I agree with. Um, you know, completely agree with in terms of, and, and your sack in terms of the trust. I think um, 
you know, one one point I just wanted to note is, I mean, when you when you look at the rules and how they might apply on a single location basis, you know, that that's one thing. But more often than not, you know, you're going to have family members in many locations. Um, and you know, just to note that, you know, the focus is not so much, you know, are there advantages, but then to make sure that, you know, no beneficiary, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, is disadvantaged. You know, so for instance, you know, you've got Australian beneficiaries. You know, there's a penalty if you don't have a current year um, distribution. So, you know, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that to make sure they're not disadvantaged? Um, the other, and I think this ties to the question you're asking, you know, is that the exemptions, you know, in Indonesia and, and the exemptions elsewhere will typically rely on a direct receipt of those proceeds. Um, so if it's received into the trust, um, you're not going to then be able to avail of those domestic exemptions. Um, you know, more broadly in, in terms of, you know, the developments in Indonesia and, and subject to the detail around, you know, you know, the, the impl in the in the implementing regulations. I mean, I do think it's I do think it's interesting. You know, generally, uh, in terms of this conversation, you know, the you know the bite in the CFC rules to date, and you know, bearing in mind eighteen months or so ago, you know, they were reformed to make them more effective in terms of being able to go down sort of lower tier um, CFCs. Um, you know, the the reduced attribution, um, and depending on how the dividend reinvestment works. Um, you know, I think, you know, such that you can, you know, that would lead to an exemption. I think that's really interesting, you know, um, you know, subject to the conditions around that and also, you know, subject to the conditions around that reinvestment in terms of how long does it have to be reinvested in Indonesia? Yeah. You know, what sort of instruments, you know, does it need to be reinvested into? But I think, you know, the, the starting point in terms of thinking about that would be the approach they took with the tax amnesty and the conditions around sort of repatriation and getting the lower you know, a penalty rate under the amnesty. Um, you know, I, the flip side, you know, the the change in the exemption, you know, for insurance, um, you know, you know, it's you know, it still would be applicable if you've got a payout on on death. I mean, in the interim, you know, you'll still get deferral because the um, the PPLI policy is not seen to be. Um, a CFC, but you know you, you do need to weigh, you know, balance those out. You know, depending on on the specific objectives, you know, of, of a specific, you know, family. And I think you know that that's always the key is really understanding all the relevant sort of you know details and and objectives. You know, not just around tax, and you don't want you know the tax tail wagging the dog. But you know, at least understanding you know what what it what it means and you know what the outcomes would be. Right, and then the, the implementing regulations are due in February. Next year. Yes. Yeah. They, the implementing regulations typically have to be issued within three months of the law being signed into effect by the president, and and that start date was the second of November this year. Right. And presumably, the Deloitte, you guys will be doing an update when it, when it finally comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Right. I think that's pretty much it. Um, I'd just like to thank you all for spending time contributing to this and, and sharing your thoughts. Um, as I've said at the beginning, the admonition is obviously these are general considerations. This is not designed to be or uh, sort of constitute any legal advice. And please, if you if you wish to contact the uh, panelists afterwards, please do. We will circulate the slides as well as the recording. The slides will contain their email addresses so you can get in touch offline uh, and going forward. So that was it. That's the last uh, virtual roundtable for 2020. Um, look forward to seeing you guys into the new year. And just thank you, Peter, Yannick, Marcus, and Michael. Thanks very much, guys. And thank you for everyone for staying on board and watching this and being patient with us. It's now one hour, 40 minutes. So that's exceptional. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. Um, see you in the new year. <laughs>